This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to Supernatural Circumstances, the podcast where we take you down the rabbit hole into the fantastic world of the strange, the paranormal, and the unknown. I'm Morgan Knutson. And I am Mike Brown. It's time to dim the lights and settle in. Come along with us on this week's adventure. And uh, this week we're talking to Cameron Pasha. He's an interesting cat. He's a screenwriter, but he's also a historian as well. He's a Sufi which yeah. is really interesting. And uh, and if anybody's familiar with the poet uh, and the philosopher uh, Rumi, um, mm-hmm. that is an example of a Sufi. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but, but Cameron's been involved in all sorts of things, including uh, he's, he's a screenwriter from Los Angeles. He's uh, worked, he was a writer and producer on the NBC series Kings, uh, The Bionic Woman. And uh, he was a writer for Sleeper Cell, which was a Showtime Network's uh, uh, terrorism drama which was pretty exciting so a lot of people are probably actually familiar with him and might not know it uh but he's here today not to talk about the hollywood version of things but the right but the the real life background of what we've come to know as essentially the genie from aladdin this idea that there are these interdimensional beings these these energetic beings that are are documented throughout the world Mm -hmm. and just looking into the background of i I think a story we grew up with yeah they're called jinn and it's spelled d-j-i-n-n and do you want to talk a little bit about what the jinn are before we get into this yeah absolutely so we see these types of creatures pop up in many different lore across the world, but mm-hmm. in specifically within the Middle Eastern cultures like Arabia and places like that, we see them come up as almost genie type characters that live within the human population. Mm-hmm. Um, they're beings that you can either befriend and everything's great. And, you know, when we picture sort of the, the big blue guy from Aladdin <laughs> or, uh, they can be something completely different and dark. And yeah. if you if you tick these things off, you're in a world of hurt. So <laughs> we see these things popping up all over the place in cultures, both in North America, uh, as I say, Middle East, all over. And it's it's really an interesting area to delve into, especially now that the idea of these you know, interdimensional type beings are becoming more prevalent. My experience with jinn or genies is only... Uh, as a kid, you know, you rub a lamp and this thing pops out and offers you three wishes. I guess it's that, uh, you know, a thousand and one uh, nights um, story, that fable that comes from there. And, you know, it was presented in Aladdin as well. But uh, there's a lot more to it than that. And so that's what Cameron is going to talk to us about today. I'm I'm excited about this topic because... I have to admit, I don't know a lot about it either. So we're all learning together today. 
Yeah. Well, hopefully uh, we uh, don't upset any gin in our conversation as we go. Well, I think we're about to find out. So let's go talk to Cameron. (laughs) Okay, let's do it. I am really excited to to get into this conversation because it's so unique and it's so different. It's something that, I mean, Mike, you and I haven't even really talked about very much. No. Um, which is the, 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 the history and the story of, of the djinn. Uh, and Cameron, I'm really glad that, that you you kind of brought this subject up when we were talking and I thought this is, this is such a, a great and informative thing to, to discuss on the show. So I'm really glad you're here. Uh, I'm excited and delighted to be on. Uh, you know, Morgan, I'm glad we got to know each other. We first started connecting over uh, over Facebook during all the lockdowns and everything. And, and uh, you know, and it's delightful to now connect with you and, and to come on to this wonderful podcast. I'm I'm absolutely fascinated, obsessed with the paranormal world. And hopefully I can bring a little bit of uh, unusual perspective coming from an Islamic Muslim background. And, you know, mm-hmm. and you know, I can share what that background is. Why should I even be talking about this if you'd like? Well, so let me give a little bit of background for your listeners as to who I am. So my name is Cameron Pasha. I'm actually a, a filmmaker. I'm a screenwriter and, and novelist, uh, director. I work in Hollywood. I've been working there for almost 23 years. I've uh, worked a lot in television. And, uh, you know, I've actually worked on some projects up in Canada. My, my show, Nikita, it was a spy show we filmed up there in Canada. And so, so yeah, so I, I've been working in that industry for quite some time. Uh, and separate to my professional background, I happen to be a somewhat unusual in Hollywood because I'm a practicing Muslim, which is not common in this industry. To be any kind of person of any religious background and actually take that seriously is uncommon in Hollywood. Uh, and then to be Muslim is especially unusual. Uh, but also within that, within that, within the Islamic religion, I'm, I'm, I am a Sufi, which is what we would call an Islamic mystic, right? So if many of your uh, listeners may have heard of Rumi, the great poet, I'm sure he's the best-selling poet in the United States. I'm sure he's a very important poet in Canada as well. And he's a, he's a 13th century Turkish Sufi poet uh, who wrote all these incredible love love songs about divine love that are so moving that even you know, 800, 900 years later, people are, are reading him in English translations and making him the number one you know, best-selling poet in the world. And so so he's a mystic, and, and Sufism is the mystical branch of Islam. And Islam in general, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about it. We're not going to get too much into theology. We'll talk about the practical things of how it relates to the jinn. But, you know, Islam in general, the jinn is very central to the Islamic religion, and then we Sufis, in particular, deal with them a lot because we're we're already you know we kind of live in between worlds. It's kind of what the system is. I'm so fascinated to get get into this a little bit because in one of my live shows, uh, ritual, where I talk about uh, uh, ritual exorcism and beliefs and and things like that, that this has come up for me a, a number of times just in in general because there's so many different practices that have very very similar phenomenon uh which is is something we can we can talk about a little bit later but i think with most people what they go to when they think about um the the like the gin and and things like that is you know the big blue genie from aladdin and <laughs> but i mean <laughs> the, but the history from what i've read uh, you know is it, it is kind of a little bit cloudy and that this was this was actually pre arabia is that right yes Yes. I mean, the word itself is an Arabic word that just means invisible. Jinn means hidden from, from the senses. That's what mm. it means, right? And uh, so it, it, is a, it is a broad term 
that refers to any phenomenon that is that is metaphysical that is not seen, except for we'll talk about the difference between angels because that's a very specific entity in the Islamic tradition. But yes, the word jinn is Arabic and it's pre-Islamic. And so before the rise of Islam, which is the the seventh century, uh, already for hundreds, perhaps thousands of years, uh, you know, the culture of the Arabian Peninsula incorporated the jinn as part of its cosmology. They were seen as, uh, you know, desert spirits, uh, and you know, and a lot of them were named after. You know, you'll, they'll have similar names to a lot of them. Uh, the, you know, the pre-Abrahamic gods of the region, right? You know, so mm-hmm. so you know, yeah. before before Islam, uh, the Arabs were largely polytheistic. And so, you know, often the jinn would be worshipped as gods or demigods, uh, you know, prior to the rise of Islam. And then with the rise of Islam, they were given a very specific category within a monotheistic Abrahamic religion, what role they play. Uh, and uh, and so, but yes, they, they predate I- Islam. And, I'm, you know, it, it really is a, a term, you know, to reflect uh, these ancient beliefs of spirits that go back, you know, to the Sumerians, to the Assyrians, uh, to perhaps cultures that we've lost uh, record of. But yes, so so I mean, if you if you think about it, uh, actually, if you look at the um, opening scene of The Exorcist, okay, mm-hmm. uh, one of my favorite movies, uh, and uh, and William Friedkin, brilliant director, uh, passed away recently. God bless him. He he actually for some one of my greatest moments on Twitter when I was on Twitter. I'm no longer on Twitter or X, whatever it is. Uh, yeah, but when I was thing. on. When I was on, for one day I got a message. Oh, William Freakin is following you, and I thought oh, that can't be the that can't be that William Freakin, right? Turns out, and I was, it turns out it really was William Freakin. I, I have no idea. Oh wow! Why he followed me. Yeah, that was my reaction, and I sent him a DM saying, "Sir, I'm so honored, but why would you follow me?" He's like, ah, "I like something you tweeted. I, I'll follow you." I was like, "All right," and and so we ended up having a few DM exchanges, and and that was incredibly you know honoring for me. But so we talked a little bit about the way he did The Exorcist, which I'm going to allow link to there. If you, if you remember, The Exorcist opens up actually in the Middle East. It opens up mm-hmm. in Iraq right. in, in an archaeological dig, and there's the Islamic prayer call. And I actually asked him, uh, I actually posited to him that I think you included the Islamic prayer call because the movie is bookended. It starts with that, and it ends with it echoing in the background after Regan has been exorcised the demon. Uh, even though she's in Georgetown, you hear the Islamic prayer call. And, he, and I said, I think you did that because you wanted to show that the fight against evil spirits is not just Catholic. He himself was Jewish. It's not just Catholic. You know, it's 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 uh, it's a worldwide phenomenon and we all must unite against these evil forces. But what's interesting, and he agreed, he said, yeah, that was actually my intention, which is great. I, I understood William Friedman's cool. intention. But but he also, if you look at the book, and it's based on the book by, by uh, you know, by Blatty, uh, who was yep. also, he was actually, of you know, William Peter Blatty was actually Arab, Arab Christian. Right, so he's coming out of this heritage, right, as well, uh, because jinn is very much part of Arab uh, Christian culture, and so he was coming out of that background. And if you look at the novel and how they do in the movie, you know, it is actually the spirit that that possesses Regan is actually an ancient Sumerian god, mm-hmm. right, right, Pazuzu, yeah, Pazuzu, right. Uh, and I think in the in this recent um, sequel that they're doing, I think Lamasu, who was Pazuzu's adversary in the in the ancient myths, so these were two like negative forces that were fighting each other is theirs. But yeah, but these, you know, these would have been considered by the pre-Islamic, pre-Christian, pre-Jewish, Middle Eastern traditions to be gods. And then later, you know, they were seen as real entities. They really, they really do exist. But they're now qualified as not being gods within Islam, but being created entities. And we'll talk about what their powers can be. Mm-hmm. 
Oh, that's that's really interesting, and and thank you for putting it into into context for for people as well. Because I think sometimes you know we hear about these, we hear these different names and and whatnot, and we think, well, you know, we we just don't have any context for for what that is. But but being able to to pin it into films that are so recognizable, mm-hmm. um, you know, that I think everybody remembers that scene. I know, like everybody thinks when they they. They think of the Exorcist. That you, they think of the face of Pazuzu, and uh, you know all of those, all of those, those crazy scenes. And and I don't think the majority of people look at that and think, oh, that's a gin. You know, I think we we've, we've kind of been indoctrinated by a lot of cultures to say, you know, and and specifically in the West, we think, well, it's it's a Christian, it's a demon, or it's it's something like that. But but so that's really interesting. Well, let's use that word you use, Morgan, because the word demon is because, you know, Christianity, uh, a, the, the New Testament is written in Greek. It's not written in Hebrew. It's not written in Aramaic, mm. which was the language that Jesus spoke. Right. It's written in Greek, which was the sort of high cultured language of the region, because the Greek, you know, it was Roman Empire, but Eastern Roman Empire was Greek at the time of Jesus. And so anyone who was well educated spoke Greek. Right. And so the New Testament is written in Greek. It's written in Koine Greek, a very specific kind of uh, early Greek. And the word demon, as used in the New Testament, is the, the, the Greek word daemon. And daemon is a, it does not inherently mean evil. Daemon, as the Greeks used the word, was jinn. It was an invisible spirit mm. that could inspire people. You know, Plato spoke of having a daemon, you know, and these great yeah. philosophers had a daemon that would be whispering great ideas to them. So the muses were like daemons. And so, you know, and the word, because the daemons that are being referred to in the in the in the New Testament are essentially negative ones. I mean, Jesus is actually an exorcist, and one of the people don't realize is that that's his most common miracle. People don't realize that exorcism mm-hmm. is his number one miracle in the in the Greek Gospels. That's that he's primarily an exorcist. Then he's a healer. Second, it's a kind of healing, but he's out there driving demons out. And so, of course, the the early church considered the only reference they have for the daemon as it's used is negative. So the word demon, as we've derived it, is inherently negative. But that's not how the Greeks used it. They used it to refer to invisible beings. And what's interesting is that these beings were thought to be able to whisper to you, put ideas into your head, right? Good or bad, right? Influence you. And that is exactly what they are referred to in the Islamic tradition. They are called, the jinn are called the whisperers. Waswisu, they whisper into your heart. You know, they can influence you for good or bad. That's exactly how the Greeks saw these beings. I love this conversation because this is going places that I, I was really hoping this conversation would go. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> this is really neat. Um, and I'm I'm learning a ton. I mean, both both Mike and I don't know a lot about this. So I'm just so glad we're like having this conversation. Um, and, you know, what I, I was reading as we were preparing for today was uh, that these these entities, for for lack of a better word, um, often took the form of animals and uh, things like that. And I, I thought that was really, really interesting. And um, we, when we think about animals and, and spirits and things like that, we think about like pagan nature di- deities um, who just gradually became marginalized as other deities took greater importance um, and things like that. And it, we see this, this sort of overlay with nature in so many different cultures. Yeah. Um, can we talk about that a little bit? Cause that's really interesting. Cause that's just not related to this, but, but in, in so many areas of, of various belief systems. 
Yeah, and so because the term jinn refers to all this, essentially this vast, you know, hidden world. Uh, in the in you know one of the early verses of the Quran, the the chapter two, the beginning verses. This is a book for those who believe in the unseen, right? And so the part of the Islamic belief is you have part of the faith is you have to believe there's an unseen world that your five senses can't access, and there's mm-hmm. it's an entire living dimension. There's life there, right? That you just you're just not able to access it with, but doesn't mean they can't access you. Just they're in a different dimension, right? And right. you know one of the ways that the jinn have been known to enter into this dimension is to take animal form, right? You know, dogs, uh, snakes. uh, What's interesting, again, going back to movies, because I'm a filmmaker, you know, we go back to The Omen. If you remember, there was the black dog that was protecting Damien. That's a joke. Right. Right. And so, uh, and so that's, you know, so that's, that's this idea of entities taking this form, shapeshifter abilities, particularly animals, that's worldwide. Every culture has this idea. Native Americans have it. The Irish have it, right? You know, I believe the fae can take these forms and other entities there. And so, you know, you, you, elves of Northern Europe, every culture has this. And you could say, well, that's just because it's an archetypal idea that's in the part of human subconscious mythology. Or you could say human beings throughout history have interacted with these entities and have seen them take these shapes, right? And that's sure. why every culture has them, right? I, I tend to go with the latter explanation, uh, but I'll give you an example uh, from the modern day. So one of my my um, uh, Sufi teachers was very very holy man, very very powerful figure. Uh, his, his name was Sidi Muhammad al Jamal. He passed away a few years ago. He was the Imam of Alexa Mosque in Jerusalem, so very highly regarded in the Islamic community. And he was also uh, a leader of of the Sufi order that goes back to it, it's been there since the Crusades in Jerusalem, right? Uh, and so he, very powerful and great mystical powers. I mean, he's, he was famous for people, you could bilocate. Like people would say, hey, I saw CD in uh, in San Francisco. They're like, no, he's, he's in Jerusalem right now. What are you talking about, right? So that kind of thing, like that kind of holy figure, right? Uh, and But he told a story about how when he went to do, do a spiritual talk in Hawaii, uh, that he went there and, and he said, Hawaii is one of the most powerful centers of jinn activity in the world. Uh, and who are the jinn he's referring to? He's referring to what the Hawaiian ancient kahunas would call the Hawaiian deities, like Pele, right? He said, and they are incredibly powerful. And he said, even I, with all my Sufi training, was not really able to restrain them because this is their land and they're connected to the energy of the of the volcanoes and you're on their turf when you go to Hawaii. Hawaii is sort of an interdimensional portal to the jinn world. But that's an example. Pele, if you study, if you study all these Hawaiian, uh, you know, uh, pre-Christian Hawaiian religion, then you have all these stories of these beings that can take different forms and shapes and, and animal beings and, and you know, part animal. Uh, again, that's because that's what... Bringing into... Yeah, bringing the, the, the animal side uh, into this, I, th- I think is really interesting because it's something that so many cultures, like we were saying, have, have connected with and, and stuff like that over over the years. Um, and it, it and those those beliefs into the, the animals kind of being, you know, being that connected to non-physical in different ways, uh, you know, we see we see this like again and again and again in 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 all of in all of these different cultures and religions and and things like that, and being just just interconnected with the the spirit world and and non-physical world um, in general. Uh, but you brought up something too that I thought was uh, was really really interesting, and that was you'd mentioned a little bit ago about uh, the the Assyrian culture, and in ritual i i had brought up uh, something that i i discovered through my research that i th- i thought was so interesting in that the assyrian culture had these 
like they had the, the the famous Assyrian tablets, which which they dug up, and and when people started to uncover what they were what what was written on them, they discovered that they had a very tight and pretty accurate diagnosis of epilepsy. And when they flipped, like when they when they they started to look at this a little bit more in, intensely, they realized exactly what these people were describing. And then on the back of the tablet, there was a drawing of what I'm now understanding through you is was probably a djinn that they blamed for the like the 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 onset of epilepsy. But they had, you know, all the symptoms, they had everything else like pretty pretty right. Um, so that got me kind of down this rabbit hole a little bit about um, about the jinn and these entities and, and things like that that have been held responsible for so long for things like uh, mental illness and sleep paralysis and, and all of that kind of a thing. Can, can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah. And I'm going to suggest to you that the, the Sumerians were right. And only now is science even possibly beginning to relearn what they knew. Uh, and, you know, so, yes, the, we, you know, there are there are mental illnesses in this world that are just the product of biochemical disorders, emotional mood swings, you know, things like that. Right. However, there is a very real phenomenon uh, which has been documented throughout history and is documented today of entity interference in the human mind. It can go anywhere from what you would call we Sufis would call it uh, obsession where one of these jinn suddenly gets focused on you and mm-hmm. gets you know obsessed with you and starts whispering a little too much into your mind so that you're suddenly being swept away by emotions you don't understand and thoughts you can't stop right leading to OCD behavior or unhealthy behavior right uh, that that and then it can lead all the way to full scale possession right uh, which is what we talked about the exorcist now one of the things that people often don't realize because again the way Hollywood has presented it is that exorcism is a Catholic thing right. No, yeah. exorcism is a worldwide, every yes. religion thing, uh, you know, and, and you know, I, I studied with Taoist teachers and they are trained exorcists and they'll share with me their exorcism stories in China, right? Uh, I I have friends of mine who are who are Jewish Kabbalists, like tr- traditional Jewish mystics, similar to Sufis. They are trained in exorcism. And, you know, a lot of my friends in Hollywood who are Jewish are like, what are you talking about? There's no exorcism in Judaism. I'm like, no, you just don't know about it, right? Right. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's real. And the Islamic tradition, exorcism is a real phenomenon today to the point that it is televised on television in the Islamic world. Really? TV shows in Indonesia, Saudi Arabia, and other countries where they will lie, they will bring in Islamic exorcist to help someone who's being tormented, and they will televise it, the healing process. Uh, this is this is not unusual in the Muslim world because it, it is considered part of the paradigm of reality that there are mental illnesses that can be helped with with medicines and and things like that. In fact, in, in the ancient Islamic world, what we actually uh, pioneered was a form of uh, of um, using music therapy, like mm-hmm. in the 12th century in Egypt. Europeans would send, European nobles would send emotionally disturbed uh, people to Cairo to get music therapy from the Sufi musicians there who would heal them using vibration. And those were presumed to be largely just mental, emotional illnesses. But then there is this other phenomenon of, okay, there's there's other stuff going on where it's not coming from you. It's coming from something outside yourself. And I think that can often be the case of epilepsy as well. Uh, I think there are, you know, probably most epilepsy cases are just uh, uh, you know, misfirings of the brain or oh. rewirings of the brain. Uh, but there are, I'm sure, I have no doubt, there are 
these phenomena of external entities interfering with the, how the brain is functioning. It's neat to hear this from a perspective of of a, a, a different culture and mm -hmm. and whatnot, and just to see, you know, where the where where the overlap is between I think the you know not only the West but but these different areas and the comparative mythology and and what I think this is just so fascinating. Um, so is is this where some of the later religions then maybe got the idea of possession from or is this the same phenomenon just relabeled? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's all relabeled. I mean, you know, it's, uh, you know, Sufis like to think that there's only one truth that's just had different languages expressing it. So we've all mm -hmm. experienced these things. Uh, you know, this is uh, the, again, the uh, possession seems to be a very early primordial phenomenon. Like I said, my, my Sufi teachers are in West Africa and they are actual exorcists. I've talked to people who've been exorcised by them or have had family members who have, you know, been cleared of jinn. I'll give you one story, right? And again, the reason I mean that Africa is that Africa has modern religions like Christianity and Islam. It has the pre-Islamic animist religions from which uh, uh, voodoo and, and you know, uh, various other Caribbean traditions are derived, right? Uh, and so it has all these things and possession exists in all of them and they all have methods for dealing with it. So these spirits, especially like the West African spirits that eventually would be become part of voodoo in the Caribbean, um, you know, are, are pre-Christian, pre-Islamic African deities who the, the I would consider jinn, right? Uh, but, you know, I'll give you an example of an exorcism story from West Africa. That, Please, you know, yeah. A good, a good friend of mine, this is a story he told me directly. So it's his brother. It's a very close friend of mine. His brother was a, uh, a, a boxer, a, a boxer, you know, up-and-coming boxer in, in the country of Senegal, West Africa, which is where my where my Sufi teachers are. And, you know, he was becoming a national contender and he needed to win a certain prize fight in order to essentially become a national champion. Uh, and so before the fight happened, suddenly my friend's brother started behaving in very bizarre ways. He suddenly could no longer communicate in their native language. He suddenly started saying things that sounded like just bizarre, strange stuff. He didn't seem to be able to connect with anybody. He looked like he had, quote unquote, gone insane, right? He was babbling and rambling and none of it made any sense and he couldn't function. And so they they brought in a, uh, one of my Sufi teachers who said, oh, this is, you know, I know what, what happened here. Let me help. And so they did the Sufi Islamic ritual to push out a jinn and he was exercised. And so my friend's brother hadn't, you know, he, he came up sort of like Reagan from, uh, from The Exorcist. He mm. awoke from this. He was in a trance for a week. He had, he had no memory of what had happened in this week, right? All he knew is that, and then they asked him, well, what happened? Tell us what really happened here. Because the Sufi's like, so tell me the magician, the sorcerer you went to. And so the guy was kind of embarrassed. And he admitted that he had gone to a traditional animist African sorcerer to get certain powers to try to be to win to win the the uh, the boxing competition, and I guess maybe that person either didn't know what they were doing or had ill intent, and the powers they gave was they melded him with some jinn spirit, but instead of the jinn helping him getting physically stronger, uh, he it took over his mind and made made him act insane, right? And so so that's an, a true story from a very close friend of mine of his brother, and that's probably within the last five years. Like I've, I said at the beginning, I think when a lot of people think of this stuff, they're thinking of you know the, the stories that the West knows, which is stories like Aladdin. Where did where did that come from? Like the genie and the lamp and the and the you know the three wishes and and whatnot? Because there just seems to be like this this huge gap. Like where did how did this happen? <laughs> 
Well, you know, we, we Muslims are responsible for it. And you cannot thank a woman for it. Shahrazad, her Thousand and One Nights is how that story mm-hmm. became yeah. popularized in the West, right? Uh, you know, the, the great story she told of Aladdin and Alibaba and Sinbad. Sure. You know, and Aladdin himself is central with the jinn, with the jinn helping him, right? But what she was doing was was relaying the the popular understanding again this, these are not legends in the eyes of the muslim world these this is yeah. a real phenomena of a hidden world that maybe westerners are either too blind to see or often mislabeling right but it's real and so she's just telling stories that you know were the it, it, funny thing is the Jin stuff isn't the fantastical stuff of the Thousand and One Nights, you know. It's like the giant right. birds, all the other stuff, right? The Jin stuff is considered, yeah, that happens, right? You know, you got to be careful with this kind of thing, right? Uh, but, but yeah, so that that's how it was popularized. But let me give you an example. So let me actually clarify what Jin is in the Islamic understanding, because uh, we talked a little bit about sort of universal and pre-Islamic understandings of it. So let's talk now what it is, so that we can relate it to Shahrazad uh, and how. That understanding entered into the Thousand One Nights and then entered into our modern Blue Genie and Will Smith and you know, Robin Williams and all of that. So, mm-hmm. so the Islamic understanding is, and it comes right out of the Quran, the sacred text of Islam, is that uh, before human beings, God had created two uh, races that existed before. The first race was the race of angels were made from light in the Quran. They're made of light energy. And then, then a separate race uh, called the jinn are created after the angels, and they are made, as the Quran says, of smokeless fire. So they're essentially energy that doesn't give off smoke. So like plasma, right? And so that's the idea, and that that's their actual um, life force is that they're that form, and that and this is the interesting thing within the Islamic tradition. So the jinn were the original inhabitants of our world, our dimension before human beings. And with the rise of Adam, Adam and Eve, and, and the rise of, of the human race, essentially we took this world from them and pushed them out, and they went into a shadow dimension to escape us. Okay, and so that is so. There's a so even though the jinn are seen as having the, in the Islamic tradition, angels have no free will. So we have a, we have a different understanding than maybe our, our Christian brothers and sisters who think of demons as fallen angels. That that Lucifer was a an angel who rebelled against God and his followers, they were cast out and became demons, the demons, right? Uh, so the Islamic tradition is the angels don't actually have free will. They're more like robots. A Gabriel, Michael, they throw a function, but they can't rebel. Mm-hmm. So, however, this other race that comes, which is sort of in between angel and human, which has, you know, this bait of this fiery energy, has free will. So the jinn had free will. And so the Islamic story is, the Quranic story, is that when God first created Adam, he ordered all the angels and the spirits to bow to Adam as the highest creation. And the angels did so because that's what they do, right? Whereas, uh, and this is the figure, he's called Iblis in the Quran. Iblis, the king of the jinn. And, you know, there's many origins for the word. Uh, you know, it could be related to the word Diabolos in Greek, right? Uh, but, Ibli- but it actually literally means, in Arabic, Iblis means he who despairs, he who has given up hope. Right. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. so Iblis is the, the king of the jinn. And he says, no, nah, this human beings are made of mud. They're made of matter. They are filthy. They are garbage. They're beneath me. I am a spiritual entity. I refuse to bow to them because unlike the angels, he has free will. And so he is cast out of heaven by God and those of his jinn followers who agreed with him that human beings are the enemy are cast out and they become the evil jinn. So in the Islamic tradition, there are good jinn. There are good jinn that acknowledge God. There are good jinns that are that that uh, that you know are not the enemies of human beings. 
But because of their very nature, they are made essentially of fire. Fire is dangerous. Even if it's not your enemy, it is dangerous. If you put your hand in a fire, even if fire is not trying to harm you, you're going to burn your hand, right? So the jinn are seen, even the quote-unquote good jinn, are seen as inherently metaphysically dangerous beings that you don't want to mess with, right? You leave them in their dimension. Don't summon them. Don't use witchcraft to bring them here. Don't do any of this stuff. Because once they enter your life, your life is going to get disrupted in the same way that once you light a fire in the middle of your living room, there's a real chance you're going to burn your whole house down, even if your intention was just to get warm, right? Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. so that's their origin. And their ability, because they are energy beings, because they are, they are not made of the same matter as we are, they can, as a result, change shape. Like I said, shapeshifters become animals, other creatures. Uh, and they need to do that to enter into our dimension because in their dimension, I guess they would be physical in their dimension. In our dimension, they're not. So in order to become physical, they have to take a form in our dimension, which are these various animal and other type of forms. But because they have this ability, this energy ability, they, they can shape shift not just themselves, but matter around them. So that is why they have the ability to, quote-unquote, grant wishes. That's an old Islamic and pre-Islamic idea that the jinn really can. You know, you can summon them. You can, they can grant you wishes. But usually, but because what they're doing is they're not actually creating anything. They're not God. They're not creating anything. They're manipulating matter to create the illusion of something, right? And mm-hmm. so as a result, you're, they can grant you wishes. But usually those wishes don't work out because it's not real. So you can ask a jinn to give you, please give me a chest full of gold. And you will get the chest full of gold. And a week later, you'll open the box and it's been turned to stone. Because it was never gold in the first mm-hmm. place. It, would just, it mm-hmm. took on that, that transformation temporarily. But the moment the jinn withdrew its energy from it, it returned to its natural state. So that's where the idea comes from, that they have the ability to create illusions, to change matter, and that they can, because they have this ability that that we human beings normally don't, that sorcerers and others can try to tap into them uh, and use that to create, uh, you know, magical effects in this world. But there's always a price. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And you know what I I really like, too, about about this this conversation as well is that something that mike and i you and i we've talked so many, so much about on this show um you know is this blending of the idea of of creating reality and our thoughts affecting matter and things mm-hmm. like that and i find it so interesting that in these various cultures no matter which one we're we're talking about uh there's this element of understanding about that you know like even look you know looking at 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 the bible when uh jesus said you know pray believe it is yours and it will be um you know all these little tidbits that come out of of these various stories that say you know that matter is malleable that we can focus in a certain way and transform our world in in various ways that our thoughts affect reality and it's it's really fascinating to me that that even in such a story of of aladdin or the jinn or anything like that we see that repeated again mm-hmm. and I, like i find that i don't know mike what do you think i find that really interesting we talk about it pretty much on every single show now how there's such a crossover between all the topics that we we cover and they all have to do with the human mind the human spirit which is really really you know my mind is just blown ever since we've started talking to people uh, and learning about different cultures and and that kind of thing, uh, it, it it always comes back to the same thing in a way, which is very strange to me. I want to build on that for a second, Morgan. If I, 
So, so, so what we are now getting to in paranormal investigation in 2020s that we are now in, in the West, is we're now catching up with what the ancient mystics understood, which is like you said, Jesus said, if you know, pray and believe and accept. My Sufi master teaches that. He once told me when I was trying, I wanted something really bad. He's like, the problem is you don't expect it. Just He said, just pray, mm-hmm. expect that God has answered your prayer and don't even worry about it because your mm. consciousness will manifest it when you expect it. If you are if yeah. you are begging and pleading and and hoping, you're not expecting it. And so he's like, well, then you're not going to manifest it. If you just ask God and then expect that it's been answered and don't even think about it again, it's been answered because your consciousness is related to it. So we're now getting to this point in paranormal investigation that we are coming to understand that our consciousness is not disconnected from the external world. It projects the external world. So all this yeah. phenomena that we're talking about is inherently coming from within our own consciousness. Oh, I, I couldn't have said it better myself. Um, when I when I wrote my first book, uh, Teaching the Living, a, a number of years ago, that was the central theme of, of the book that I, I really, really wanted to drive home was that that we are involved in shaping the reality. And and I think the paranormal, uh, you know, m- no matter what phenomenon we're talking about, it, people have this notion that this phenomenon is, is asserted on us. Mm-hmm. And that's just simply not true. It, it isn't asserted on us. We have a massive role to play in what is being projected, what we're experiencing, how we're shaping uh, the the world through like our our beliefs like we've talked about our um you know what we what we know to be true what we don't know to be true uh you know all of these different things we have this direct influence as to how this stuff and how our world is unfolding and so I I'm loving the fact that that uh you've you've brought that up Cameron well and and as I will link it again to the idea of where we are paranormal investigation so what we're now getting to is the stage where paranormal investigators in the West are beginning to understand, or at least begin to theorize, that all of this seemingly discrete and disparate phenomenon from ghosts, poltergeists, aliens, you know, the fairy, the fae, to UFOs, to all kinds of stuff, Bigfoot, you know, Loch Ness Monster, that all of these things that we thought were discrete, unusual paranormal phenomenon may all be manifestations of the same thing, that they may all be interdimensional mm-hmm. phenomenon rather than physical phenomenon. And yeah. guess what? That's exactly what the mystics and the and the Islamic uh, scholars have been saying. The jinn are interdimensional by nature. So a Muslim would say, yeah, of course Bigfoot's real. That's just a jinn taking that form. And then, it takes a, yeah, and then the UFOs are, of course, real. Those are just ships that jinn are using to enter into our dimension. So it all, it's all one phenomenon that takes all these different things. You know, that of, well, of course, the Nessie and the Loch Ness is real. It's been documented for over a thousand years, right? Of course, because it's, it's, not, it's not a plesiosaur. It's a jinn taking the form of, of, a, of, a rept, of a serpent. That's all it is. And so when you, and now we're getting to a place where more and more Western paranormal investigators are beginning to think this is all one phenomenon. Yep. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. We, yeah. Mike, you would talk about uh, Chris Auerbach, and we, we just had a conversation with him about UFOs and this. Exactly this exact same thing. And if, if even uh, Matt Baglio, who studied the Catholic rite of exorcism, he too uh, is, is, it, coming to that same camp it's very very um telling that the entire world seems to be moving toward this one idea which in a way it's kind of comforting because our ideas have been so disparate for so long 
perhaps that Tower of Babel is just falling down and we're, we're really starting to learn that we're all one thing. We're all one thing and the universe can't be put in a box. That's why you're yeah. never going to solve these things. 200 yeah. years from now, you're going to have, you know, the holographic podcast about Bigfoot that was, or, and they're like, and scientists will be like, well, why can't we catch this thing? You can't, and, and still people will be reporting the phenomenon because you're never going to be able to put it in a box because it's not from our dimension. So you cannot, mm -hmm. sure. you're trying to catch, a, literally you're trying to catch a ghost. You can't do it. And that makes the world wonderful and magical. Yeah. Oh, I couldn't agree with you more. I, you know, it's, it's funny because I was, and I've talked about this on the show before, I, I used to be... I used to be the, you know, all cryptids are, you know, flesh, blood and bone person. I, I was a hands down that I was that guy. <laughs> and what was interesting for, for me coming into a lot of this, a lot of this research in terms of uh, uh, dealing with things like, like Dogman and, and Sasquatch and, and, and whatnot and learning from um, you know, like the First Nations cultures here in Alberta and, and whatnot is that. I, I began to see this very, very differently. And my own experiences with both of those things have now opened my eyes to, to realizing that, no, there, there is a very, very strong, like, and label it however you want, spiritual, interdimensional, all the things. There's a, there's a non-physical component to this, like everything in the world. I mean, everything's got that non-physical component. It's just a matter of where does, where do each of these things sit on that non-physical spectrum? I mean, we, we, we touch things and we think, well, that's physical. Well, therefore that's real. But I mean, we know if we look under the microscope, that's just not the case. I mean, everything it's is there. just, it's just it's not there. Energy packets. That's all that's, it, there. that's there. Exactly. Yeah. And it's like, so, so it makes you wonder like where, you know, where are we on the spectrum and, and, you know, if things like, like spirits and or gin and, you know, all of these different things, uh, you know, maybe they're just further down the spectrum than we are. But I mean, there's such a, a, a massive part of us, I think, that is that is non-physical, and I think once we allow once we allow ourselves to acknowledge that non-physical part in ourselves, it makes some of this other stuff begin to make a little bit more sense too. Mm -hmm. So on that, let me say. So I want to link it now to what we talked about already. Let's. I want to bring out personal experience. So I have now come to have direct personal experience that consciousness, at least my consciousness, can provide me experiences that are paranormal. And the most amazing example of that, which I never in my life expected to happen, because I've been investigating paranormal first as a Sufi and just I go off on these ghost hunts and have fun and all that stuff. And I've had strange experiences and caught interesting EVPs, all that. But I never expected this. So in 2019, I saw a UFO with my own eyes for the first time. Right. And it was a UFO. It was not it was not a drone. It was not an airplane. It's not a satellite. I mean, I, and the uh, you know, what happened was I was in the Atacama Desert of Chile. Uh, and I was there with a tour group because that was the year they were having the solar eclipse. I was there to watch the solar eclipse in the desert with a tour group. And I saw it. It's amazing. If you haven't seen an eclipse, it's a life changing experience to see with your own eyes. Mm -hmm. So that was wonderful. And after the eclipse was over, we hung out in the desert as a group, had a picnic there, and then we're going to drive back to Santiago, Chile, where our hotel was. So we hung out there for a couple of hours because uh, it, it had been an afternoon when the eclipse had happened and the sun was going to set afterwards. And then I just turned to one of the people on the tour and said, you know, I suddenly remembered something. Atacama Desert is the most famous sighting spot for uh, UFOs in the whole world. 
you know, the Chilean government has a has an open X Files program, government program to to where you can report things, and they did that because so many so many military pilots were seeing strange ships and phenomenon over the specific area of the Atacama Desert. They're like, something's happening here. And so I was like, yeah. oh, it's interesting. We're, we just happen to be in the area. And I hadn't really realized it the whole time when people see UFOs all the time. And I just said that without thinking much about it. And so about an hour later, we're all getting back on, uh, the sun has set and we're all getting back on the bus to go back to the city. And I, I, let, I got on the bus and then I, I think I'd left something out. Oh, I forgot something out in the sand. Let me go get it. So I step off the bus and the moment I step off the bus, I see it. And you ha I'm sure you've all had this experience where your body reacts to something before your mind can. Yes. Right? Yep. Uh -huh. yes. So my body, before I could react to what I'm seeing, my body went into fight, flight or, or fight or flight mode. My heart started pounding. I was like, and the words came out of my mouth, what the hell is that? And I wasn't even know why I was saying these things. Then my brain processed what I was looking at. So right above us in the desert was this brilliant, brilliant uh, red light that looked like a strobe light floating about 100 feet above us. And the sky is perfectly clear. It's not a helicopter. There's no sound. Even drones make sound. And it's just right above us. It's incredibly bright. It's illuminating the area. I'm like, what is this thing? And, but it was something that my body knew shouldn't be there and reacted with this fear reaction, right? But I stepped mm -hmm. out to see, and I saw two other people standing there, man and woman, and they were gazing up at it in complete awe and were staring at it. And it it's bright and it's not flashing like, you know, airplanes and others have to have flashing lights so they're differentiated from stars so you don't have an air crash in the sky, right? So it's just a bright, unchanging light, uh, incredibly bright. And then suddenly it changes instantly from red to green. Suddenly it's green, right? And it's still hovering there. And we're staring at it for it's stays in the sky for about three minutes, just hovering now green. Uh, and I turned to the gentleman next to me, and he turned out to be a professional pilot. He's an airplane pilot on this tour mm -hmm. with me. And he said, that's not a plane. That's not, that's not a drone. That's not a helicopter. I've never seen anything like that in my professional career. And we're looking at each other. Are we looking at a UFO? Is this actually happening to us? And then, as we said these things, it finally, it suddenly switches to a new color. It's red again. And then it, it suddenly plunges towards the earth rapidly. But before it hits the ground, it just blinks off. It vanishes. Wow. And we saw this. Aww. So we saw this and we're stunned and we're looking at each other. Do we just see this? And then the bus driver comes out because we're the last three stragglers. They all want to go. And he, you know, they're not actually not a lot of native Chileans. That, you know, it, it, there's not a large community of, of indigenous people in Chile, but there are some. And he was an indigenous Chilean. And he came out and he said, hey, hey guys, what's up? We got to get back on the bus. We got to get back. And we tell him what we just saw. And he just laughed. He said, oh, those are those are the those are the aliens. My people have seen them for hundreds of years here. Right? He just said that dismissively, right? He's like, oh, that light, we've seen that for hundreds of years. That, those are the aliens. And then we, we, were like, we went on the bus and we told people and they all literally just mocked us. They laughed at yeah. us because yeah. I mean, literally no. there was one professor who spent, I was on the trip for another two days in Chile and every five minutes we, we'd be outside he'd point to a plane, there goes your UFO, Cameron. He was, you know, those people, they just became uncomfortable with this, that three people claimed <sighs> to have seen this, that they had, right? Or they didn't want to see it. And the funny thing is, as we were driving back to the city, we stopped at a rest stop in a village in the desert, like indigenous people's village in the desert in Chile. And when we stopped at the rest stop, we noticed they were all selling alien trinkets, little green men, right? Because that was so oh. much of a phenomenon there that they would sell trinkets to, to, to tourists. Yeah, um, that's telling. <laughs> but, but, you know, so that's an amazing experience. However, what's central to it is I was talking about UFOs one hour before. I mm -hmm. absolutely believe my consciousness connected to their reality and they came mm -hmm. yeah yeah oh that's beautiful 
That's beautiful. And I'll add. And then I'll, I asked I'll my add... Sufi master. I asked my Sufi master about this. And he said, although that that was those were the jinn. And he said the jinn portals open during solar eclipses. So that's what happened. They came in through a portal during the eclipse. That's what he told me. Oh, wow. I'll, I'll, I'll add to that before we before we wrap up here, because I I had a, a ex- experience and have had experiences like that in Alberta, but not with not with UFOs, um, mm-hmm. but with other other entities here. And I've had that as well, where I've, you know, been out in in the in different parts of the woods here in Alberta. I mean, we, we've got sort of a very similar terrain to we've got prairie, and then we kind of have like this sort of Alaskan kind of territory. And I've been out in the these the deep, thick woods out there. And what I found in my cryptid research is the sort of the, the spiritual side of it is that setting the intention before I go out and setting that intention so that I'm I'm coming in not only in a, a form of presence um, like just you know I'm not looking for evidence I'm not looking for you know that next thrill I'm not looking I'm just I'm just going to experience and being present setting that intention then going out I have had experiences more often than not yeah. following that method than anything else. And, and you know, I, and Mike, you and I, we talked a bit about this earlier today before this, and it's, it's so interesting, Cameron, that, that you, you sort of bring this up because yeah. I can relate to this, like absolutely relate to this. And it's, it's, it's phenomenal. And, and, you know, so many people, they go out, I think, in search of these things. But like, you know, you talked about on the show, that's simply the wrong state of being to be in. Because if you're in search of it, you haven't found it. Right, exactly. I wasn't looking to see a UFO. I was just aware that this is the area where they are seen. And so as a result, I embraced the reality of this is UFO land. And as such, they opened. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, complete non-resistance. And we see that in parapsychology as well, where most people that have, statistically, most people that have spiritual experiences or see apparitions or, you know, have something go on with their, you know, their loved ones passed away and then they experience their loved one again, most people are in a state, just in a state of allowing, whether they're, you know, doing the dishes, they're kind of letting their thoughts wander, they're watching TV. Um, and just in the same way, when people are seeing things like Sasquatch or Dogman, they're driving in their car, they're kind of doing mindless things. A lot of, you know, hunters, they're kind of kicking back in a tree stand. Um, you know, they're in this just state of allowing. And all of a sudden, this stuff starts to come through. And it's just, it, I, yeah, I just, I love this conversation. Cameron, thank you so, so much for this. Thank you. I, and I'm delighted to come back on. A lot more crazy stuff I can share uh, uh, yeah. in the Islamic, you know, mythos. And uh, I just think your podcast is wonderful. And I'm honored that I got a chance to be on it. Awesome. Uh, where can people find you if they're looking for you? Uh, the best way, you know, there's two ways you can, if you just want to follow my, my adventurous life, you can follow me on Instagram, which is my name, Cameron Pasha 72. And I'll spell that it's K-A-M-R-A-N-P-A-S-H-A-7-2 at Instagram. Uh, and if you're actually interested in hearing my perspectives on Hollywood and all this other stuff, uh, you know, from this Sufi Muslim's perspective on things, uh, I have a Patreon, which you go to Patreon uh, and enter my name, Cameron Pasha, you'll find me. So Patreon slash Cameron Pasha. And we've got about 300 people on there. We have a really lively community. We talk about everything from Hollywood to mystical phenomenon. So so come join us there too. Awesome. 
That's fantastic. Thank you so much. This was amazing. And I feel like I have learned so much. Yeah, too. <laughs> about a lot of cultures that I wasn't even aware of and and what the traditions were and this is this is great so thank you Cameron and we will do it again. Thank you. Take care. I want to learn more. Just to pull back the curtain a little bit, I'm reading a book called The Golem and the Ginny, which is based around uh, the golem, which is the Jewish entity, and the Ginny, the Islamic entity, and how these two interact with each other. And it's actually a love story, which is fascinating. So, Oh, that is fascinating. Mm-hmm. I have not heard of that. Yeah, it's it's worth reading. That's really fascinating because I think there are so many stories that for at least the Western culture that have, have really been lost around mm -hmm. this this area, you know, and right. we hear a little bit more about these types of creatures in the form of uh, terms like Skinwalker. We've talked about Skinwalker Ranch, um, you know, these sort of shape-shifting beings that seem to mm -hmm. you know, interact with our dimension and we don't quite understand it. So right. I like, but I've, Cameron is, is so full of information that I can at least feel like I can get my fingers into this now. I don't yeah. know about you, but like it, this feels accessible to me now. Yeah, it, he described it in a way that I can understand it a little better. And and like I say, it makes me want to learn more. And uh, because I'm le I'm reading this one particular book by Helene Weckler, it's even more interesting to me because you know I want to learn about every single topic that we talk about in. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of funny, like, I have only so much time in my day. I mean, we were talking a bit before we started recording that, you know, I'm doing edits for my second book, and I am <laughs> planning my third, I'm writing Dark Poutine, I'm working on some other projects, as well as Supernatural Circumstances, and I'm like, why is there only one of me? <laughs> <laughs> right? And why why can't I just focus on all this cool stuff that we're learning all the time? And you know, but you know, I'm I'm happy to be a, so positioned to be able to do the jobs that I do. But uh, but yeah, I just I just wish I could go down rabbit holes with these things. Well, maybe we you need to start making some friends with some genies and start making some wishes. <laughs> make wishes for time to slow down so I can make better use of it. Or more time. One or the other. Yeah, I'm, I'm hoping I have some time left. I mean, I'm only 55 this year. <laughs> well, you know, this this subject to me is so, so cool because <clears throat> it, just like many of the others that we've covered, we get a glimpse into these various cultures and to get a cultural understanding of some of this phenomenon where you know we're so plugged into the western explanations of things mm -hmm. and what i love about conversations like this one is that we get to take a look at this phenomenon which we have seen in in other cultures and and other religions and things like that and we get to have a, a new take on it and a, a far older take than the labels that they've been given maybe, you know, in more recent years. And so this, to me, these historical lessons, this is where we really have to be able to understand that folklore itself, there is truth to this stuff. Like there is hmm. some truth somewhere in there and that everybody's got a story in order to try to explain the phenomenon. I love this stuff.
I'm so grateful that we even made the approach to start to talk about these things. And, and, and now we get to talk about it with a, a whole bunch of people. So it's really cool. It's it's really amazing. And, and Cameron was just, say, yet a, another person that's made me feel a little bit more enlightened than I was. Yeah. And so we'll share some links about where to learn more about Cameron. And I'll share the title of that particular book that I mentioned in the show notes. Well, that's fantastic. And I, I really hope people kind of can open their eyes a little bit more to outside of the the West mm-hmm. in terms of looking at this stuff and, because it really does shine a different light on it. Mm-hmm. And that's, the, I don't know, that's just, that's what I hope that people get out of stuff like this. That's what I'm getting out of it. Me too. <laughs> yep. Thank you for joining us on this eerie expedition, dear listeners. And remember, the line between the natural and the supernatural is often a thin one. Until next time, stay curious, friends. Supernatural Circumstances is a co-production of Entity Seeker Paranormal Research and Teachings and Good Egg Studios. This podcast is part of the Curious Cast Podcast Network. Theme music by Corey Johnson of Catalyst Records in Edmonton, Alberta. You can learn more about Morgan Knudsen at EntitySeeker.ca and learn more about me, Mike Brown, and listen to my show, Dark Poutine, at darkpoutine.com. Feel free to email the show at supernaturalcircumstances at gmail.com.